Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Children of the 80s are back for another lunchtime movie review. I'm Matt. I'm Greg. I'm Jay. And I'm Patrick. And this week, <laughs> since it's baseball season, we're bringing you not a baseball movie. <laughs> or a movie that insists it is a baseball movie, which is good because this movie does a lot of insisting. Yeah. It's a uh, pick by our fans, <laughs> our listeners who pick this movie. Yeah. Obviously not Matt. Baseball movie, and they had a choice of Major League, Bull Durham, some other crap in this one, <laughs> and this is the one that won. The Natural. Yeah, The Natural, I take over this one. Way to insult the listeners there, Matt. <laughs> Good job. As listener. <laughs> if you say plural, two or three people who happen to vote. This week, we're bringing Kevin Costner's in a baseball movie, of all things. But not Bull Durham. <laughs> not Bull Durham. Not the good baseball movie he was in. Not even the second best baseball movie he was in. Dance with the Bulls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, feel the dreams. But first, the Untouchables. You know, nah, there is a baseball. There's, there's baseball, a baseball, baseball there. Very <laughs> more baseball <laughs> in Untouchables than in this film. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast brought to you by Ghost Be Gone Crop Dusting. Do you have annoying ghosts in your cornfield <laughs> or your cornhole? <laughs> Hire Ghost Be Gone Crop Dusting for all your ghost-busting needs. All right. Who's got the review? Or, I, sorry, who's got the uh, summary? I do. And i got to get into character. <laughs> <laughs> the, day was, the time was the 1960s. Oh, no, that was Johnny Dangerously in the Dan 20s. That was last week. <laughs> I loved how that character faded like Kevin Costner's accent in Robin Hood. That is very <laughs> Robin Hood. All right. What's, uh, what a field of dreams about brothers and sisters brothers and sisters gather round as i recount the tale of the field of dreams the supernatural time traveling baseball family drama that depicts the return of our left fielder and savior shoeless joe jackson our tale begins with the small iowa farmer ray kinsella now brother ray is a farmer of corn and not a good one at that one day while tending his crop ray begins hearing voices voices that tell him if you build it he will come now, many good Christians in the Bible Belt would take such a command to build a church for the return of Jesus Christ. But Brother Ray knows what the voice wants and instead builds a baseball field for the ghost of Shoeless Joe to play on. Praise be to Joe. Praise, Praise be, be to Joe. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I got an audience. Wasn't in on that joke. You <laughs> <laughs> weren't supposed to be a part of the podcast. <laughs> Praise be to Joe. Yeah. <laughs> now, many of you already know the tale of Shoeless Joe Jackson and the, the god of the baseball diamond in pure mortal form. Joe, who had his own demons in life to fight, the demons of temptation and the hanging curve. You see, brothers and sisters. So I was going to throw in a Jackie Robinson reference right there. <laughs> well, we'll get to his racism later. 
You see, brothers and sisters, Joe gave in the temptation and took the money from the devil in exchange for throwing the 1919 World Series in defiance of God's will. And although Joe took the devil's money, he still batted 375 and collected 12 hits in the series. But Joe attempted to repent for his crimes by getting liquored up and confessing his sins to a grand jury that he threw the game by letting catchable balls drop and throwing balls short in order to let the devil's team, the Reds, there you go, score more runs. For his sins, Joe and seven others were cast out of the Major League Baseball Association of America, never to know the divine grace of Cooperstown. So Brother Ray put in much hard work and sacrifice to build his, this shrine for, to the aforementioned Shoeless Joe, and his work and sacrifice are soon rewarded when Shoeless Joe and his seven disciples soon come to play at Ray Stadium. However, not everyone can see the baseball-playing spirits. You see, brothers and sisters, only those who truly believe can see them. Those that don't, such as Ray's brother-in-law, played by some nerd named Poindexter, can't see the ghosts. Why? I don't know. There just has to be some strife in our tale before we come to the ultimate conclusion. But to this point, all is good for Ray and his family. Praise be to Joe. Praise, Praise be, be to, to Joe. Joe. <laughs> He's in there such, on that such, one. <laughs> such an enthusiastic. <laughs> Joe, I'm <Pro. laughs> <laughs> I imagine... <laughs> This is what it's like for church for you guys. It's kind of this like zombie this like. This is my cult. Be the Joe. Yeah. All right, shit, we got a stance. Been in a Catholic church lately. That's pretty much it right there. However, Brother Ray is soon hearing voices again. I know what you're thinking, brothers and sisters, but no, Ray is not going to build an ark and collect all the animals in pairs. He has to find Terrence Mann, the fictional black equivalent to J.D. Salinger, played by Darth Vader himself, James Earl Jones. Praise be to Jones. Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Once Ray finds Darth, he has to take him to see God's team, the Boston Red Sox. Oh. And although many would expect our spiritual dude... <laughs> Did you just have an orgasm? <laughs> Out of Jay, pure disgust. Jay, there will be no more masturbating during podcasts. <laughs> no one can deny that the Sox are God's favorite team. <laughs> and although many would expect our spiritual duo to seek out and punish the one named Buckner for allowing the slow roller to go between his legs in 86 series, that mustachioed devil went the way of the Angels of California in 1987. No, you see, brothers Ray and Darth are there for a different purpose, and that was the purpose was to get a message from a mysterious voice to tell them to go to Minnesota to find a man who's been dead for 17 years. Moonlight Graham. Praise be to Joe. Praise, Praise be, be to, to Joe. Joe. Once in Minnesota, Brother Ray, apparently affected by the power of Shoeless Joe, travels through time to have a conversation with Dr. Moonlight. They discuss doc the doctor's ultimate regret in not having a major league at bat during his playing days. Generously, Ray offers Moonlight a chance to remove his ultimate regret. Ray tells him he can take him someplace where he can fulfill his wish, but Moonlight turns him down and stays dead in Minnesota. Ray and Darth left to wonder what is, in Joe what is Joe's purpose for them in the small town of Ch Chisholm as they head back to <laughs> Iowa. The... Along the way, Ray and Darth pick up a young hitchhiker by the name of Moonlight Graham. What? Whoa. You may be asking yourself? There you go. Well, brothers and sisters, it's best not to think too hard about such things. Baseball playing ghosts work in mysterious ways, and sometimes their true purpose may not be revealed to us until the end of the film, if ever. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the farm, the forces of evil are organizing to strike against Ray in order to prevent him from completing his mysterious task. They take the form of Ray's brother-in-law and his partners, who attempt to take Ray's farm via a vile foreclosure. When Brother Ray gets to his farm, he finds out that Shoeless Joe has brought more disciples to the Blessed Diamond. Moonlight is invited to play with him and ultimately gets to fulfill his one wish of having one big league at bat. However, he is suddenly called back into service as a doctor to help Ray's choking daughter. Unfortunately, Moonlight cannot return to his mid-season form after crossing the gravel, so he is sent to the farm team out in the corn. 
He doesn't get an official at bat, though. I don't know. He, he didn't ask for an official at bat. He just wanted to have an at bat, and he had an at bat. But Moonlight's sacrifice is not in vain, for not only does he save Ray's daughter, he has shown Poindexter the light and made a believer of him. Now even the nerds can see the heavenly tobacco-chewing spirits. Praise be to Joe. Praise, Praise be, be to Joe. The converted Poindexter tells Ray not to sell, for as Darth has foretold, people will come. <laughs> Our left fielder and savior Joe then invites Darth to join him out in the cornfield. Because, brothers and sisters, in Shoeless Joe's days, that is where the black man would often be found. You see, racism was another one of Joe's sins in life. With Praise <laughs> no. no, screw you, Joe. Joe yeah. With Darth's departure, this leaves Ray and his wife and child to ponder what this has all been about. Shoeless Joe finally reveals his plan to Ray. You see, the entire task has been Brother Ray's penance for res disrespecting his father when he was a teenager. Joe has brought back the spirit of Ray's young baseball-playing father in order for Ray to make amends, something Ray was not able to do in life because he was young and his father was old, and Ray could not forgive his father for that. The film ends with a tearful Ray asking his father if he'd like to have a catch, the very thing that Ray himself refused to do with his father when he was a teenager. In the background, cars are seen driving to the field, just as Darth predicted. The people will come, the farm will be saved, and Ray's father's pain is eased. Praise be to Joe. Praise, Praise be, be to, to Joe. Joe. He's a racist. No. <laughs> All right. Build O Dreams. When does this thing come out? Uh, it was released on April 21st of 1989, the same day as Pet Cemetery, Red Scorpion, and Speed Zone. Also the same month as Criminal Law, K-9, uh, Major League, one of your favorites. Yeah. Oh, my favorites. Uh, Say Anything and Dead Calm. It grossed just over $64 million. It was the 19th highest grossing film of 1989, right behind Turner and Hooch, Born on the Fourth of July, and Uncle Buck. Uh, right in front of Tango and Cash, Harlem Nights, and Sea of Love. $15 million more than Major League. It's nominated for three Academy Awards, including what? Best Music, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Picture. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, the, the orchestration's pretty good in it. I'll, yeah, I think the, I'll give them that. The, the music is... But best film? Come on. Best what film? else is nominated? What, what wins that year? Uh, Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> what should have won that year? <laughs> Field of Dreams? I was kind of surprised. When this was nominated, I, I'd worked in the movie theater mm -hmm. when this came out, and I was kind of surprised that this got that kind of attention. Yeah. Uh, again, I just... Feel this movie really insists upon itself, but most baseball movies that take themselves seriously do. Anyway, uh, all right. So eighty nine. Give us uh, a reference of what's going on in eighty nine. In uh, April of nineteen eighty nine, uh, on April third, Seton Hall beat Michigan for the uh, to win the NCAA basketball tournament. Hmm. Uh, on April seventh, a Soviet sub sank. Or is that so the Fab? Sorry, the Michigan is that the Fab Five? No, that came a couple years later. Okay. Uh, April 7th, Soviet subsink, or they want you to think that, because apparently Hunt for Red October was a documentary now. So. Uh, <laughs> the Oliver North-Iran-Contra case went to the jury. Um, the pro-democracy protest in Beijing, China started. And most importantly, April 24th, Massachusetts declared that day as New Kids on the Block Day. Uh, the beginning of the apocalypse. Hang in time. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, so you were in Massachusetts in April? <laughs> Got my ticket. And Civil Union. Yeah, 89. <laughs> and other than Kevin, you got Kevin Costner, you got uh, James Earl Jones, and his wife, who's the... Amy Madigan. Yeah, the chick from Raising Arizona, right? That no, right? that's Holly Hunter. Really? <laughs> Amy Madigan had been in Streets of Fire, Places in the Heart, and Prince of Pennsylvania. 
and not the lead I've never role. Heard of any of those, man? The Prince of Pennsylvania with Keanu? No, no I don't remember He's that. In. He Keanu the fuck out of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I would expect nothing less. That's why no one heard of it. Yeah, she's. I, I can't. No, yeah, she's. Really place her. She's really. This is probably your biggest role of her career, I would say. Yeah, and that's really it as far as actors, right? Bert Liotta. Burt Lancaster. Oh yeah, that's Moonlight Grand. Oh yeah, you're right. Oh yeah, and, and Shoeless Joe, um, a pre uh, puffed out, uh, <laughs> swollen uh, Ray Liotta before he was stung by bees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is right before Goodfellas. <laughs> yeah, a year before Goodfellas, and that's his breakout role of his career. Although he's he's kind of an uphill trajectory at this point. He's going from supporting roles to this is one of the leads in this film. So. Right, and then Goodfellas, he's, he's yeah, he's the guy. All right, well, let's talk about uh, Field of Dreams and the, the film itself, the story. What the fuck is it even saying? What the, What is it even? What's the point? It's about forgiveness, trying to make amends with your father. That's what I take from it. Yeah, so it's regret. Right, because it's a lot of, a lot of buildup to a very unsatisfying ending, right? So if that's the ending, if that's the point. That, that's your viewpoint, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> Noted, <laughs> but then why this whole Moonlight Graham thing and the and the uh, J.D. Salinger uh, from the book, I guess, of the the writer character and all this? Why these other ah, just unessential plot points? It feels like because the Kevin Costner character had to go through an experience. He had to go almost like on an adventure to realize how much regret he was really carrying with himself. That's why. Unsatisfied. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much a movie about faith, and I, you know, it's and your well, faith. I mean, not not spiritual faith, but just faith in what family and in redemption. Well, right? faith in you know whatever that there's a, a grander purpose towards things, that a grander purpose for this character, and that they ex they, they do go very far to explain it to the audience. I think with James Earl Jones in the van ride saying this is your penance, is for what how what you said to your father, you know that you're, and that's why he's doing all these things. Is he's kind of like. And it's very, and as Greg will tell you, Greg and I have read, I've read the book, Greg's read a portion of the book that is very different from the book. Yeah, and I wanted to talk course. about that at some point, but by the end of the movie, I, I agree, it is about regret, but mainly it's about regret that I'd watched that much of that film at that point. But yeah, no, it was, so you talk about how he says to his dad, you know, he's, he's regrets that he writes his dad off and he leaves for college and goes to Berkeley or whatever. He That'll does, right? show him. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go to a good college on the West Coast. Right. So he leaves to college, and, and they really have a, a strained relationship. But they don't really seem to focus on it being that bad. Well, you know, in the film, they, they kind of focus on the fact that they have these words about, I can't respect a man who whose hero is a criminal, being Shoeless Joe, his father's hero. And that he and leaves. I just can't respect a man whose hero is an athlete, but... But the, the, he leaves and never gets a chance to take that back. Whether Except that, for pool holes, Jay, right? <laughs> Turncoat. Um, so he never is able to you know, make amends for making that statement, which you're giving the impression that he doesn't actually even believe in, that Shoeless Joe is somewhat his hero as well, but he's doing something to purposely hurt his father. Right. But it's such a benign conflict that the whole the whole premise of the film is kind of based on. You know what I mean? There's The, the conflict between the, the, the father and son just seems so uh, meh. I, I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't think the conflict is that you know, 
you know, you're a bastard and you beat me my whole life or anything like that. It is, it's, it's, I think it's more, more typical of fathers and sons in everyday life that he describes it at one point as my father got really old and I was young and I, you know, that basically they couldn't meet eye to eye, that they couldn't have this kind of meeting of the minds because they're just so different and so different people because of their ages. As, as everybody cats says. in the cradle. Well, yeah, exactly. That's Cats in the Cradle. I know Jay had mentioned that. That's one of the reasons that he liked the film, and it makes him kind of think of that song. I, I agree with, with Matt, though. It's a little bizarre considering the kind of conflicts that were going on in the 60s, which they refer to. Ray and his wife talk about that and the whole you know book banning scene, which seems completely out of place but you know you had these stories of you would think okay ray's father was pro-vietnam war maybe he served in the world war ii his son is against the war protesting you could have the counter just counterculture of the 60s versus the the generation before civil rights you know that sort of thing and instead it's it's over a dead baseball player that <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> What I took from this movie was that they kind of left the reason why the two were in conflict blank because, you know, fathers and sons, you can just kind of project your own uh, familiar relationship into that role so you can kind of relate more to these characters. And so that's what I took away from the whole conflict is they didn't go to a lot of backstory. And, and I, actually, it, I actually took the same thing as that it was left nebulous so that each uh, individual that's watching the film can kind of personalize it and mm -hmm. say... I get that conflict between my parents or my dad and the generational uh, kind of yeah. chasm, right? And to say that the whole schism was about one statement, I, I I just don't think that's accurate because you know when you're a teenage boy, you're just trying you're going to say something that you don't necessarily mean, but you're just trying to hurt your parents, and that's that was probably very meant to just hurt him. He, like Patrick said, that he didn't believe it, but he was just trying to do anything to hurt his father and just because of the built-up resentment for and, whatever reason. And by going to Berkeley, his, his dad was clearly a Stanford guy, so it really, <laughs> yeah. really broke his heart. <laughs> uh, so we mentioned the 60s, and Jay, you had a, a take on the film and, and kind of its discussion about, about the 60s. Yeah, it, was kind of, it wasn't so overt like when you watch it, but when you watch it critically, you can just kind of tell that the, whoever the writer, the, the producers of this movie, just had an absolute love affair with the 1960s. How you had um, the Annie characters like with um, had the showdown with the book burning or the book banning, like you didn't experience the sixties like it's something to experience. If you didn't experience it, you're missing out. Or even in the opening montage with Kevin Costner saying, "I was more of a student of the sixties." It just has this absolute love affair with the nineteen sixties, which I think is just absolute bullshit. Well, you get, when you take it from the point of view that. You know, baseball is considered an institution of America, and a lot of '60s is counterculture that they wouldn't buy into. You know, one wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be a fan of the '60s and also a fan of baseball to a certain extent. I, I'm sure there was bleed over, but it doesn't necessarily fall into play. That you know, the the sons rebelling against their fathers would rebel against the institution of baseball and wouldn't romanticize it as that these characters are supposed to do in this film. Yeah, and I also take it as a, a love affair of, of baseball generally, how there's all this so much greater meaning to baseball in the game and, and all this that I think is so overplayed and f***ed out that it just becomes annoying. It's a 
game and See, not very good one. So you hated the whole soliloquy of Terrence Mann, oh, baseball. You know, yeah, like, that crap, exactly, because that's not just in this film. You get that you know, with sports writers, and it, it seems to be somewhat of a reoccurring thing where people create baseball as being something that it's not. But uh, baseball, maybe at one point it was. But baseball is something, and I think any sport can be. It's a way to get families together, like a father and son who had a big schism to, hey, you want to have a catch? It's that kind of romanticizing, I think, is what the movie was trying to go for. Is finding common ground between people who have differing viewpoints. No, I, I, I dig that. And for some people, I have friends who... Very 60s of you to dig it. <laughs> Sports do unify. Accept that. It's this that somehow baseball transcends even other sports and that there's some sort of holy sacredness uh, attached to baseball uh, as, as a sport. Well, and, and it's funny, you know, bringing up not, you know, we're talking about a movie, not the book, but the book is much more entrenched in baseball. I mean, it is proli it's prolific throughout. They're talking about everything has to do with baseball, where here, arguably, you would say, as you stated in, in your opening, that this is not a baseball movie because it's not really about baseball. It's, the main point is about relationship. It's got a backdrop right. of this baseball field and these, you know, mystical baseball players. And how much is this truly a baseball movie? No, I, I think that's a... That's a good point. Now, so tell, tell us about some of the differences between the book and the movie that highlight the, the most significant ones. Well, Greg and start and Patrick. <laughs> well, first of all, there's Ray is not in, in the book is isn't the one with the estranged relationship with with the deceased father. It's his, his twin brother Richard. Hmm. That he has a twin brother that they eliminated from the screenplay. That he had a falling out with his father. Um, Ray builds the field. And from the get-go, is asking Shoeless Joe to bring his father back. You know, like, can you, hey, I know a father, uh, I know a guy who played catcher in Florida. Can you bring him here to That's play? That's his goal from the beginning. From the, like, first 20 pages, he's he's mentioning that, hey, we want you to, you know, can you bring his father back? So it's never, where in the film, it's kind of this twist, this surprise at the end that the father comes back and he can make amends. In the book, it's Ray wants to bring him back from the get-go, and he actually comes back later in the book and he's afraid to go talk to him, and his brother's there, and his brother can't see the, the field. He can't see the players. Um, he doesn't believe, and it's not until the last few pages that his brother finally can see it. And never really makes amends other than to talk to him, but th th this father has no idea that they're his son or his sons. Huh. So, and and we, get, we get a better sense of, of Ray the man. He met his wife uh, when he went to college in Iowa, and it, I, the, the prem I... I I don't know if it's ever revealed, but at least the uh, I'm still reading the book. But it's clear to me that he's probably going to the Writers College at the University of Iowa. He's a writer. Mm -hmm. um, he ends up buying a farm because he falls in love with an Iowa girl that grew up on a farm, mm -hmm. and she kind of talked him into it. Uh, he had never had a background in farming, but yeah. other than Ray's brother, there's a second character. Uh, a character who's supposedly the oldest living Chicago Cub that he buys the farm from. So there's this baseball tie, this mm -hmm. continuous baseball tie to that. All right. Well, let's uh, what else we got? talk about this genre. Jay, you did some research on uh, this as a as a film, or I guess what type of film this was, and kind of an interesting debate started. Yeah, the uh, AFI, uh, American Film Institute, classifies this as a fantasy movie and actually ranked it as n the number six best fantasy movie of all time. All right, give us the other five. Number Wizard, one, Wizard, Wizard of Oz. Oz. Which yes. has dwarves. 
Yes. Okay. So I, I will say that that qualifies for a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's my definition of fantasy. Must Willow. have dwarves. Yes. Right. Wizard of Oz. Time bandits. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just referencing Under the Rainbow. <laughs> Wizard of Oz, number one. Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, number two. It's a Wonderful Life. That had Lord of the Rings had dwarves. Well, uh, Mr. Characters. Potter was in a wheelchair, so he's kind of a little person. King Kong. Ooh. Oh. Yeah. Miracle on 34th Street. Oh. Uh, Field of Dreams, and then they drown uh, out the 10. Harvey. What the f*** was that? That's Kim, a James Jimmy Stewart, Stewart was a, as a, with his fake rabbit. Six-foot rabbit. Six-foot rabbit. Marco. And he's a drunk. <laughs> Almost, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, maybe. Uh, the Thief of Baghdad from 1924. There's yeah. little people in there, I'm sure. <laughs> it was the 20s. Give me some midgets. Get them in here. <laughs> Quick and pampered with crackers. <laughs> and uh, number 10 was Big. Wow. Uh, Tom wow. Hanks, Big. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I so, can name about half of those. I would not put yeah, on how the do they? Yeah. So how do they define fantasy then? Uh, AFI defines fantasy as a genre where live action characters inhabit imagined settings and or experience situations that transcend the rules of the natural world. Otherwise known as film. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I prefer my, our category. Dwarves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. dwarves. <laughs> little people. If there's little How's people little in people? it, it's yeah. fantasy. That's right. So how does this... So it's got a dragon and falls in there, too. Dwarves yeah. and dragons. Dwarves and dragons. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So then, if don't really necessarily think this is a fantasy film. So the ultimate question. Jay, what is the ultimate question? Is this a baseball movie? Matt? Our listeners say yes, Matt. Uh, well, we said yes because we put it in the poll with baseball movies. It is, so it, and I would argue it is. It a was listed movie. in there. I I don't think it's a baseball movie because because the baseball is a character uh, to a degree, um, you know, an intangible character. But it could be replaced with football, with uh, you know, golf, with um, you know, any you know, with hiking or bicycling. It's anything to connect. With the father, they happen to choose baseball. Whereas when I have a baseball film, I want it to be about baseball. Eight Men Out, Major League, Bull Durham. What was the other one? We had Natural, even, which uh, all had different elements, but the baseball aspect was a lot more critical to the story. Well, they all involved yeah. baseball teams. Yeah, you know that that those films are essentially about a team or a particular baseball player. Where the main focus of this one is not the baseball player; it's the farmer who has this relationship with a ghost of it. But it's not; it's a road it's a road trip film. It's not it a is. baseball film. It is a much smaller road trip film than the book, but um, but it is very much. I, I still think it's a baseball movie. I would put it in that category. That I I, find, I agree with you that it is. That uh, baseball is more of a, a backdrop. That it could have been any sport that they chose, but you could have made Major League as a football film and just changed the team and the play, you know and the players. Wouldn't have been as good. Doesn't no, work out that way. No, football movies generally suck. Baseball yeah. movies are always better. Well, even so. basketball movies, man, it's just it just doesn't work. You got the characters, and you got you know. I'm thinking. I was thinking about the basketball movies: Fast Break, Fish That Say Pittsburgh. You, you're going to bring up some good ones. Hoosiers, that's it. Oh, yeah, Hoosiers. Hoosiers is the it only does stop, It does stop. <laughs> Amazing Grace and Chuck. Amazing Grace and Chuck, which is also a baseball S film. Space Jam. <laughs> that's Ooh. true. Because the space That's right. 
blue chips. The kid isn't going to play baseball anymore. That's right. He's boycotting. Yeah, that's right. Joanna man. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. So no, I don't. I don't think it's a. It's a baseball movie. What was the other one? Stealing Home. We had on that list. Stealing Home. And I've never seen Wife, that. The Natural. Field of Dreams, Bull Durham, Major League, Eight Men Out. I think that was all there was. So there was a lot of crap on there too. But there was there was like four films that I think were. I, I wouldn't have been surprised if Natural, Major League, Bull Durham um, would have won. I was a little surprised this one won. Yeah, I was too. I, well, I know you were disappointed. I really <laughs> was. You know, the fact that you have this viewpoint on it, uh, something I wanted to talk about was the diametrically opposed views on this film that. In my research, one of the things I came across was that uh, Premier Magazine rated this as one of the top 20 most overrated films of all time. Amen. And having worked in the movie theater, I was telling Jay ahead of time that I worked in the movie theater when this came out. In fact, it opened the first day I started working there. Hmm. And I worked there for a year when I was in high school. And... Uh, I, more people walked out of this film than I can recall in any other really? single film. That there, were, but you had such different people coming in, and or, you had the people walking out going, "This is a stupid movie. It's ridiculous. It makes no sense whatsoever," and demanding their money back. Wow. And then you had people coming out in tears after the conclusion of the film, and you know, having such an emotional reaction to it. It was, it was. I, I understand. I, you know, watching it, I like the film, but I can, I, I would admit every criticism you have it it just comes down to taste and but it's interesting that this is that that it falls into that overrated category and yeah and i just find it under unentertaining as well but what do you think greg i i I liked it as a kid a lot i i like it less now but i still enjoy it i you know i i think it's it's very it's a very corny movie but most baseball movies are (laughs) i don't think you can get cornier than the natural and i that's a movie that i i love too so I, I I'm in the the club with with Patrick. I I like this movie in spite of all of its shortcomings and you know non non sequiturs. Hmm. I think it's Con- Kevin Costner's best role. I really do. Really, I, I think it's better than Dances with Wolves. I think it's better than certainly Elliot Ness. And I love The Untouchables. But wow, uh, yeah. you know I have to agree with it. Kevin Costner as an actor has a limited range, but this is in his wheelhouse. This a playing little. Backwoods farmer guy. I I don't have a problem believing him in this role. Like Robin Hood is too far. Waterworld's too far. You know, I just don't think he has the, you know, the gravitas to play those roles. But like this and Bull Durham and even Dancing with Wolves, I think is right in his wheelhouse. Of yeah, I, I'm surprised you said. It. What about compared to Bull Durham? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm I think the writing in Bull Durham is is fantastic, and I think just about anyone delivering those. That dialogue is gonna seem great because the words are so perfect. But That's I just not unfair. I, I think that I, I like his interactions with uh, James Earl Jones. I, I think that works in the movie for him. But I love James Earl Jones too. It's kind of like Burgess Meredith. You, you, you can't go wrong when James Earl Jones shows up. As far in my book, and, and, and even though he's not necessary to the to the plot, I think he adds a lot of class to it and. And and then the last scene that that Kevin Costner has with his dad, uh, he pulls it off. I mean, he he really does play it. It's just understated. The way. It's not terrible. right. It's just, yeah. Who no, cares? he would have been if he would have balled out, started crying. You know, he would have overplayed that role. Right. But he he played it with just 
enough quiver in his voice that you, you can detect the kind of the relief, the sadness of his character that he has this opportunity and chance to do that. So, and speaking to James Earl Jones, I, I know you made fun of it earlier, but I love the speech he gives in front of the grandstand right before, you know, saying that people will come. I think that's a, a great speech about baseball. And you may disagree with America's relationship with baseball, and I do think it is changing. I don't think baseball is romanticized as much as it was 23 years ago when this film came Although out. Moneyball did very well, and and one of the last lines that, you know, the Billy Bean character played by Brad Pitt talks about is the romanticism in baseball. I, I still think it applies. Yeah, but it just doesn't have maybe the same appeal that it, it did. Never under, underestimate the, the value of having Jonah Hill in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I say, I'll, I'll listen to anything Brad Pitt says. The man is 40 years old and handsome as f***. <laughs> There's people. nothing gay about finding Brad Pitt extremely attractive. I think he's closer to 50, man. Is he he's really? He's oh up in his yeah. 50 now. Yeah. <laughs> well, the James Earl Jones even speech. hotter. <laughs> that makes him hotter. <laughs> he just so, gets more wait handsome till he's a as he gets older. Fox. <laughs> wait till his hair goes gray like Clooney. Ooh. <laughs> so I did have a question about this, though. Does it require the ghosts to be... Kind of literal and real in order for it to have impact. Because I was trying to go all Chris on us, right? And kind of break up the symbolism and kind of what it means, right? And trying to channel Chris, which can't do uh, him justice. Means it like mind. Hamlet, where there's always that, there that decision is does the ghost really exist? That's it. Or is, is it all in Hamlet's imagination? Right. right? And, and so I was thinking about that further. Is it real? It is about redemption and it's about seeking redemption, but it's redemption that can never be achieved because his dad's dead. So it's more of a cautionary tale for me, right? Yeah, this is a great fantasy to think, okay, this could happen. But what it really is is instructive on you don't get these do-overs. You don't get to pull a ghost out of the cornfield and have a catch. You, so, the, so that's what I took that from. This is, <clears throat> this is not literal. It's happening uh, in his mind, and it's happening through his own journey. But at the end of the day, you have to realize that doesn't happen. And there's no going back to fix right. it right now. And it's just his subconscious <laughs> desire to make amends and kind of, for lack of a better term, he goes into this fantasy world. That's right. <laughs> that's kind of where, you know. It is a fantasy Maybe. <laughs> that's what I took from this film. Booyah, bitches. <laughs> All right. We uh, knocked this one into the cornfield. <laughs> Let's go that around. That ball and, ain't uh, coming back. <laughs> Let's uh, go around and give our ultimate review of field of dreams jay i like this movie i like this movie when it came out in 89 and i still like this movie um one thing that did kind of strike me when i was watching it critically um for this podcast was how different this movie would have been had it come out five six years later uh you see the montage of uh, going to the library to do research on microfiche or to go into um, a telephone booth to use a telephone book could you imagine this movie if it just came out five years, ten years later with the advent of um, the Internet to do research or cell phones rather than um, to use a, a, a phone booth? So despite it being kind of dated, it still stands the test of time in my book. I was in high school when this uh, movie came out, and, and I was uh, a very avid uh, baseball fan and baseball player at the time. And uh, I, I, the movie, I, I really loved it as a kid. It, it, strangely, I, this movie should appeal probably more to, to, to older people than, than younger people uh, because of uh, the, the themes that it deals with. I don't 
like the movie as much now because I watched it with a more critical eye than I did as, as a kid, but I still enjoy it. I think uh, it, it expresses the romanticism of baseball very well as in, in has a lot of uh, timeless themes that sort of uh, uh, connect it to the game of baseball. Uh, fathers and sons, redemption, and uh, faith. So, uh, yeah, it, it stands the test of time. It's a very good film. I like it. I, well, I, I don't like it. I do not like the film. <laughs> I was going to say, wow, that's surprising. <laughs> I don't. We've convinced I, you. I believe it stands the test of time visually, and, and the, the, the anachronisms don't really uh, don't really affect it at all. So I think it was shot well. And one thing I will appreciate, the, the baseball field is beautiful. I mean, I do think it's 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 very it's very pretty. Yeah, Thank they, you, Scott. They painted it. <laughs> they did. I watched the making of it. Oh, really? Yeah, it started browning, so they just started painting it no every kidding. morning. So by the end, they, there's a scene towards the end that they show. If you look real close, you could see that it is just a brown field that's been painted. And, and I will say, I played baseball at least in high school, and I was a catcher. And was involved with. I was at the field more than most, right? Because of that, and I was really into keeping the field in really good shape. So I did. Appre- I do appreciate a good-looking field, but I just. I don't like the story. I find it boring, and I do find it insisting. And at the end of the day, it's a fairly. I, I just think the the, the ultimate message, uh, although although my might be ubiquitous and that everybody can relate to it it's really not that deep i would agree i don't think it the the message behind it is very deep i um i as i said i worked in the movie theater when it came out i saw it when i worked there i thought it was a quaint little film but i was also 17 at the time so i was at that age where uh having this idea of making amends with your father or not being able to see eye to eye on something just didn't resonate with me yet because i didn't see eye to eye with my father i was very you know, I was somewhat of a rebellious teenager. I knew, I knew everything in the world type of thing. As I've grown older, I've come to appreciate this film more, and I enjoy this film more. And although I don't have a bad relationship with my father, and I could, and I can talk to him on any day, on any day I want to, so I don't have that issue. But uh, I think it resonates with me more as I can start to appreciate, as you know, as I've become a father, the idea that sometimes there's just a difference in time between two people that they can't overcome and that there's these little things like baseball or movies or whatever it may be that you can bridge that gap and make that um, make that connection that you not not necessarily able to make and and I think this film captures the idea that they had this connection and they didn't take advantage of it and then ultimately they he has this uh, this last opportunity to do so and I like the idea of that you know what was it? Didn't we just do a film recently where it was about redemption or about... Oh, we were just doing one. But we had the same freaking take. Was it? Yeah, didn't we? I mentioned well, the that. Best, best of Times we talked about. Oh, yeah, redemption. I guess that's what I'm... Why I said I had a very similar take where it yeah. didn't resonate with me as right, that's a 16-year-old, but as an adult, I, I still thought that was a shitty... I like this movie. I still I think it stands the test yeah. of time. You know, we talked about the Oscars and stuff. I remember going, oh, that's nominated for an Oscar? Oh, yeah. that's strange. I wouldn't do it. Now I could look back and go, yeah, I get that. No, I think that's really a good movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it would have been in there. Well, that's Field of Dreams. Check out our Facebook page at Lunchtime Movie Review. Well, keep listening, and uh, we're getting out of here right now, and you guys are invited.
This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for lunchtime movie review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHN Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.